In this episode, we speak with Aaron Katz, co-founder and CEO of ClickHouse. ClickHouse is an open source database management system, which allows users to generate analytical reports using SQL queries in real time. Its technology works 100 to 1,000 times faster than traditional database management systems and processes hundreds of millions to over a billion rows and tens of gigabytes of data per server per second. Before founding ClickHouse, Aaron helped grow Salesforce.com between 2002 and 2014 from a private 200-employee startup to a $200 billion market leader. He was also part of the team that took Elastic public and drove revenue from $5 million to $500 million. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. I'm happy to be here, RJ. Thanks for the invitation. One of the things that really caught my attention was the time you were with Salesforce and the amount of change that happened during the time you were there, the scale that you were able to help the company achieve. You know, if there's like one insight, and I know this is a really tough question, if there's one insight that you could share about enterprise sales, software sales, what would that be? It's going to be difficult to boil it down to one insight, or if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. And it's frankly not. And the 12 years that I spent at Salesforce was quite an experience. Frankly, I joined that company because I was unemployed coming out of the dot-com implosion and hadn't gotten into business school, which was always part of the plan. And so I met with Mark Benioff and he offered me a job as a sales engineer back in early 2002. So 21 years ago, and then I had this wonderful life experience helping grow that company. And the company went public two years later in 2004. And in 2005, I moved to Singapore to help open up their Asia Pacific headquarters. And I spent four years expanding Salesforce across the region and then went out to Europe to help with some of their expansion in continental Europe and then did something similarly in Latin America. And, and so, you know, if you put a gun to my head and said, answer the question, what's one thing about enterprise sales? I'd say, you need to look at it through three different dimensions, regardless of the product. You need to look at it through market segmentation. So catering to companies of all sizes in all industries, both private and public sector. You need to look at it through internationalization. So how do you take a product and distribute it in non-English speaking countries? And then the third is the diversity of the use cases and how do you cater your messaging to accommodate different customer personas and how they adopt the technology. And that's ignoring all of the other complexity around enterprise sales. Do you go direct? Do you go indirect through resellers, channel partners, GSIs, et cetera? And I was very fortunate during my time at Salesforce to have exposure to all of those different dimensions, You know, selling to small to mid-sized companies all the way up to large enterprise organizations, selling into government agencies, both in the US and overseas selling a variety of different products. As you know, Salesforce started as a single product company. When I joined, it was essentially a glorified contact manager um, that then led to their Salesforce automation product. They then got into customer service and support marketing automation and the underlying platform. 
So you had all these different use cases that you needed to accommodate. And then the international mix, really, there's no substitute for living in these international markets and being a student of how business is done in Japan and how that differs from South Korea. Do you set up your Asia Pacific headquarters in Sydney or Singapore? I mean, at the time, 21 years ago, when we established Singapore as our headquarters, it wasn't the obvious choice. It was leading towards that obvious choice, but Hong Kong was still the center of gravity in North Asia. And that has obviously since changed dramatically. And so we could talk at great length about any one of those dimensions, but it was a wonderful life experience. And I'll forever be grateful to Mark Benioff, who I believe is the best CEO in enterprise software in the last 30 years, maybe in the history of enterprise software by a wide margin. And I was very fortunate to learn a great deal from working with him. In those early days, presumably you're having these sales strategy meetings and conversations, and you're trying to decide where to allocate your spend, which markets to focus on. You mentioned ways that you segment the market, you know, ways to approach the sales process globally. But how do you do that in a efficient, prudent manner? I mean, it doesn't sound like you did it as a scattershot. You probably had a way of doing it. Was it based off of the lowest hanging fruit first? How did you kind of approach that as you know, many software companies probably are trying to figure this out? Historically, legacy enterprise software companies that were distributing their software through a, a client server method would look at traditional metrics before going into a market in terms of what the addressable market looked like, if there was any sort of customer demand that they could point to. But that's been completely flipped on its head with the emergence of SaaS services and distribution methods like open source, where people can adopt your technology in an international distribution way with very little friction before you need to invest heavily in sales and marketing. And so you get a lot of signals about people that are evaluating your services, and you can then prioritize your expansion based off those. The number of people that are, if you have a, a free tier or a free trial, which are very different offerings, and we've debated both of those at great length at all of the companies that I've worked at, whether you have a time-based trial or indefinite free tier, or whether or not you're giving your base software away for free, like in the case of many open source companies, like my previous company, Elasticsearch, or the current company, ClickHouse. And you can gather all of those signals, and that really does help you inform decisions around investment in these different markets. And in doing so, if you can cater to different sizes of companies, which Salesforce did very effectively, and so did Elastic and ClickHouse, then you can start on the low end and the long tail and capture small to mid-sized customers very efficiently, very quickly, largely with an inside sales function that's typically lower cost. And then you can progressively move up market from there. And with that comes quota setting and comp plan design and territory carving. But you know, fortunately, we've got a lot more data over the last you know, 15 years, especially over the last 10 years, to really inform these investment decisions more so than you know, if you're selling hardware or you're selling on-prem software. You said something really interesting about the early days of Salesforce and how it sounded like a more simple product at the time. You know, when you're thinking about building software companies, you know, do you lean more on the sales process and, and having kind of that, what they say is the MVP, the minimal viable product, and then evolving the product along the way? Or do you focus on the product and just making it as good as it can be? How do you approach which activity to pursue at the early stages? Well, you need to do it simultaneously. And the early years of Salesforce was not a walk in the park. Let's be clear. The competitive landscape 
was very vocal that cloud computing was a fad, that it could not be trusted. It wasn't secure. It was not reliable. It wasn't durable. And they had a lot of proof points to point to around dot-com companies that didn't survive. And frankly, we had a difficult time keeping the service stable and available. And at the time, two of our largest customers, Cisco Systems and Merrill Lynch, were frankly threatening to leave the platform because we couldn't maintain availability and uptime that they required. So you had companies like Oracle and Siebel and SAP that went on very vocal campaigns opposed to cloud computing. And obviously that's changed dramatically as those companies have pivoted their entire businesses towards cloud-based services. And so, you know, it ultimately boils down to how quickly can you get referenceable customers? That's the ultimate measure in the early years to demonstrate that you're not making these baseless claims that your service is going to increase sales productivity. It's going to come at a lower cost of ownership. You're going to have this rapid return on investment, but you have customers that are making those claims for you. And, you know, we're going through this right now at ClickHouse where we launched our cloud offering roughly five months ago, and it's been wonderful to pull from the market. And we now have paying customers that are migrating from other cloud-based data warehouse technologies onto ClickHouse Cloud. And they're talking about those real benefits that they're realizing, whether it be cost savings or, or performance improvements. And without the credible claim from a customer, it really doesn't matter how much you invest in distribution or, or whether you turn inward and double down on product quality. Obviously, you need to do that in the absence of customer references, but securing those early references, from my perspective, is the most critical thing for any enterprise software company to do in the first few years of incorporation. So tell us about how the idea for ClickHouse came about. Well, I observed ClickHouse in the wild for many years, and it was extraordinarily popular when it was open sourced in 2016, and companies like Uber and Cloudflare and eBay adopted ClickHouse for some very large mission-critical workloads. And so I observed it emerge. It was incubated inside a Dutch company called Yandex um, that's got operations in Europe. And I got introduced to the CEO of Yandex and the creator of ClickHouse, Alexei Milovidov, who's a brilliant engineer. And we started talking about forming a company around the database technology. And this is quite common in open source. There's a lot of popular technologies that have spun out of larger organizations, technologies like Kafka or Hadoop, and now ClickHouse. And so essentially we engineered a spin out and we formed a Delaware Corp and we raised venture capital. And we started the company in August of 2021. And our business model was clear. We're gonna take this very popular open source analytical database and we're gonna build a managed service that we call ClickHouse Cloud and bring all of the benefits of ClickHouse without all of the operational overhead to where you can deploy ClickHouse in a matter of minutes and scale it horizontally and vertically. And uh, that's what we've been working on for the past uh, two years. We've got a vibrant community growing in popularity by almost every measure, and we're just getting started. And, and fortunately, partnered with some great investors. Our timing was very fortuitous. You know, Prior to the market shifting, we're able to really bolster the balance sheet to make sure that we've got many years in front of us to execute on this vision. I'm glad you're going in that direction. We do like to talk about investors and how that partnership can really benefit companies, particularly if they're in the rapid growth phase. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to partner with the investors you partnered with and kind of how it's going. Yeah, my situation is a little bit unique because I had worked with these investors in the past. And so I knew them and they knew me. And so there was a very strong level of confidence on both sides of the table 
when we brought the company together. And specifically, that was Mike Volpe at Index Ventures and Peter Fenton at Benchmark. And from my seat, two of the most prominent investors in the last 20 years, especially when it comes to infrastructure software, and especially when it comes to open source technology. And so that was a very natural marriage. It just kind of came together and it was very efficient. We found terms that everybody could live with and we started the company. And then following that, there was a lot of investor interest because people had been following ClickHouse. And frankly, I don't think anybody really expected a company to be formed around it with Alexei and the core team contributing to the database engine, which we did. So a lot of investors came forward, excited about what we were building. If you think about it, RJ, this would be similar to spinning BigQuery out of Google or spinning Redshift out of Amazon. A lot of complexity. You've got trademarks, intellectual property to form an independent company around this. And so fortunately, some other investors who I'd worked with in the past at Altimeter and at Co2 and Lightspeed and Redpoint came forward and said they would love to participate as well. And and that was just equally a natural process of us getting together and saying, look, we don't want to shop this around and pit people against one another and make for this kind of unhealthy start to a long-term relationship. Let's put it all on the table. Let's be brutally honest and transparent about the type of company we're going to build and the type of help that we're going to receive from our investors. And you have to remember, this is at the period of time where I wouldn't say capital was free, but it's very different than it is today. And so popular Companies had a lot of choice when it came to which investors they worked with. And investors were very selective, especially when you talk about what are you know the most successful investors in a category could really pick and choose the companies that they participated in and that they would commit for many, many years to help build. And so that was my personal story, but I know that differs largely from other entrepreneurs when they start a company and they don't have those pre-existing relationships to leverage. We talked about kind of your roles with other companies before, and it, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like this is the first time maybe you've worn the hat of co-founder. How has that experience been different than other roles you've had? Is it wildly different? Are there a lot of similarities with prior roles? Well, let's separate co-founder and CEO because they're very different. And I'm not the creator of ClickHouse. That's Alexei. And I don't run product and engineering. That's Yuri Israelevsky. And Yuri joined us from Google. And I first met Yuri when he was at Netflix running platform engineering. And he's an incredibly accomplished engineering leader in our industry. And, and for the last 25 years, I've studied distribution on the go-to-market side. And so we have this unique combination of three co-founders, this brilliant engineer who created ClickHouse. This is his life's work. You've got Yuri, who's been building distributed systems on top of open source for 20 plus years. And then you've got my background, and they're very different and very complementary. So that's kind of the co-founder moniker. And the three of us work very well together, and I stepped into the CEO role. Let's talk about maybe the CEO role, because that's the first time I've been in this function. What I often have viewed my career historically is no matter what job I'm in, I'm the CEO of that region. I'm the CEO of that territory. And I've even told my sales teams to have that mindset. Like if you think about your territory, that you're the CEO, which means you've got to allocate resources, you've got to prioritize your time, you've got to compete against others for access, and it really ultimately comes down to you. If you have that mindset, then transitioning into the actual CEO role is frankly not that dissimilar because you've always had the sense of ownership and the sense of influence. And I also talk about our early employees. We've got a little over 100 employees, and I tell this group, like, this is the connective tissue for the company. If you're one of the first hundred employees, 
you need to have a co-founder mindset. Like you've got early equity in the company, but more importantly, like you're a company builder. And so the culture of the company is going to be entirely reflected on how you come to work every day. And we're a distributed company. So how do you come to work in a virtual way every day when 60% of our company is in Western Europe and 40% is in the US? If you have that co-founder mindset with that early employee base, it really breaks down levels in an organization. And I'm just one of a hundred, frankly, and I'm contributing in the same way that an engineer or a sales rep's contributing at this stage of our company. Mm -hmm. This concept of distributed versus hybrid versus in-person and, and how that impacts productivity, how it impacts the culture. Are there some insights that you've developed over time about how to do this effectively as a distributed company? Yeah, it's interesting. So Salesforce, when I was there, was highly concentrated in San Francisco. And you were in the office every day. And literally, your physical proximity to Mark Benioff was directly correlated to your role level and potential in the company. And so if you got moved down the hall or up a level, you'd be like, oh, no, what is this signal in terms of my career progression? And then at Elastic, it was a distributed company, although we had a concentration of executives in Silicon Valley that worked together in the office. And so we had a little bit of both. And now for many companies that were born during COVID are fully remote. We do have an office in the Netherlands and we've got a group of engineers there that work together in the office. I'll tell you, it has a lot of obvious benefits around recruiting and hiring. We're able to access incredible engineering talent in places like Portugal and Spain and Croatia and Germany that other companies of our size that still want to be together physically aren't able to capture. Many larger companies have pivoted away, obviously, and are hiring remotely. But I do think it comes at a cost. I personally am more creative when I'm in a room with individuals solving problems with a whiteboard and going for a walk and going to get a coffee during the day than I am solely interfacing virtually. And so you know, we invest in departmental offsites on a reasonably frequent basis. We get our teams together in person for a week at a time. We do company all hands meetings where we get the entire company together physically. And I think that is a requirement for fully distributed companies to allocate some amount of capital to put people on a plane and invest the time together in person. Really, there's no substitute for that from my perspective. And fortunately, there are a lot of companies that really aid in this distributed work, we partner with a company called Deal, and they help us employ people in a lot of different jurisdictions that if we had to go and create our own entity in all of these different markets, it would be very cumbersome and operationally complex and expensive. But fortunately, we can use these PEO and EOR partnerships to recruit globally. We're heading into the tail end, and I have two closing questions. But before that, we talked about Mark Benioff and a seemingly larger than life persona in the way he leads and the concept of that proximity to him in a physical space, how has that influenced or has it influenced at all the way you choose to lead? I learned a great deal from Mark. I mean, he is this, as you mentioned, this bigger than life personality. He's extraordinarily philanthropic and charitable. You know, don't forget that I wouldn't make the claim he's a disciple of Larry Ellison, but his career got started at Oracle. And so, you know, he was exposed to a very intense cutthroat sales and marketing culture, and Salesforce took that very seriously. Now, fortunately, Mark had uh, Parker, 
as a co-founder to run product and engineering. And, and fortunately, I have Yuri and Alexei to run product and engineering. So I'm able to really focus my time and energy on distribution. But Mark, again, he's, a I think, a once-in-a-generation CEO. I mean, he, you know, surrounds himself by luminaries. One day you could be at an executive offsite with General Colin Powell. The next, it could be ex-president Bill Clinton, President Obama, Bono. I mean, it really is, you know, celebrities admire him and want to be around him. Rock stars invite him backstage to their concerts. You know, he's uh, essentially funded a children's hospital. That's one of the leading children's hospitals in the world with UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital. And so I just think we're so lucky to have him in our industry as a role model, and we can learn so much from him. And I think if I'm able to just reflect a fraction of his leadership skills, I'll consider that success. All right. The last two questions that we may have already answered it, uh, but one is, can you tell us about a person who has had a profound influence on you? Yeah, I'm going to come back to my mother who came to the United States as an immigrant with nothing and established a life here and raised my sister and I in an environment where we valued hard work and frugality and the value of time. So, you know, her influence cannot be understated. It continues to be so to this day. So as Warren Buffett said, I won the ovarian lottery in that area and I just be eternally grateful. Excellent. Last question. Can you tell us about a charity, cause, or other endeavor that you feel passionate about? That's a good question. I'm an avid outdoorsman, so I do a lot in terms of environmental conservation without going into too much detail. And then the Special Olympics has been something that, for whatever reason, I just gravitated towards in my early 20s. And you know, it comes and goes in and out of my life, and I wish I was more active today than I have been in the past. But that's something that I could look back over the last, gosh, 25 years and say that's something that I've cared deeply about and contributed to. Fantastic. Well, Aaron, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Appreciate the invitation, RJ. Have a great day.